0: Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Bretton Rodriguez, and I'm speaking with Sam Clausen about the connections between chivalry and violence in medieval Castile. In particular, we will look at the role that this chivalric violence played during the Castilian Civil War in the 14th century, the conquest of Granada in the late 15th century, and the early establishment of Spain's Atlantic Empire in the decades that followed. But first, a little information about our guest. Sam Clawson is an assistant professor of history at California Lutheran University. He received his PhD in 2015 from the University of Rochester under the direction of Richard Kuiper. As a medieval historian, his research has focused on the relationship between chivalry and violence, as well as the lived religious experience of elites in the middle ages with particular attention to the kingdom of Castile in the late middle ages. He has published several book chapters and in 2020 published his monograph entitled chivalry and violence in late medieval Castile with Boydell and Brewer. In examining the relationship between chivalry and violence, Sam argues that violence formed the heart of, of knightly identity, defining the political, socioeconomic, religious, and gender identities of the dominant lay elite in Castile during the Trastamara period. In the classroom, Sam teaches not only medieval history, but also ancient history, as well as early modern European and colonial Latin American history. Sam, welcome.
1: Thank you, Breton. Um, I'm delighted to be here, participate in the podcast, and I look forward to chatting with you today.
0: Sounds good. Um, so let's let's go ahead and let's let's jump right in um, so I want to start pretty broadly um, and just really thinking about some of the terms that we're using beginning with some of these these definitions so to start what exactly is chivalry where does this term come from and when does it begin to develop as well
1: yeah um, so this is a, a contested issue and it's one we might not think is contested but uh, it, it matters to define our terms uh, when we think about chivalry in the modern world most of us uh, have images of, of something like a woman approaching a door and a man holds it open for her. And she says, oh, I guess chivalry is not dead. Uh, that whole idea of is chivalry dead is really important uh, in our modern world. And in recent years with things like uh, the Me Too movement, uh, whole, whole discussions have been had about what is chivalry? Is it something we even want in society? Uh, but our modern sort of concept of, of chivalry as this relationship between men and women and a code of conduct for men especially as they interact with women, comes to us really from the Victorian period, from the 19th century. Um, And that's throughout Europe, uh, whether that's in Spain, also in England and France and other parts of Europe. Uh, The Victorians were sort of searching for meaning. Uh, They were searching for a way to define themselves. Um, They were searching for a way to make sure that their young men behaved. And they looked back to the Middle Ages, which they often saw as this sort of golden age, when things were right, uh, when things were good and they found uh, sources, documents, literature, uh, treatises on chivalry that said, this is how man should behave. Uh, and they took that as truth. That was when things were good and that was how men behaved. So that's our modern view. And it's it's incredibly distorted from the actual medieval understanding of chivalry. So what was medieval chivalry? That's a tough question too, and it's, it's so contested. Um, <laughs> My argument is that chivalry is what I call an ideology, and I've had lots of people argue with me about that term. Other people have used the word worldview, uh, perhaps a culture of chivalry. The point is it's a series of ideas, uh, a series of assumptions, and then a series of prescriptions about the behavior uh, and the attitude of, as you said, the dominant lay elite of medieval society, and that would be knights, uh, lords, nobles, and men-at-arms. So uh, the term comes from French originally. Uh, the French term "cheval," which is horse, uh, gives us "chevalerie," horseliness, if you like, uh, and that is broadcast into English as chivalry, uh, into Spanish as caballeria, um, which gives us uh, chivalry in, in multiple um, uh, European languages. Uh, so that's that's the sort of etymolo- etymology of of the term, uh, but the sort of congealing of chivalry as a set of ideas, as a culture, as an ideology, as a worldview uh, requires several precise things to come together. And historians disagree about this. Historians of chivalry don't have a moment when you can say chivalry has now appeared. Uh, Some would go back as far as the court of Charlemagne Mm. and say, look, you can see chivalry there as a warrior code. Others would put it much later. Some say you don't really have chivalry until the early modern period. And again, as A historian of medieval chivalry, I fundamentally disagree with that. Uh, So from my perspective, you really begin to talk about chivalry in a profound way when you have several components together. Uh, Number one, the sort of martial code, this focus on honor, um, this idea that my worth in society as a knight is determined by how much other people, my peers, respect me. So if I say I'm going to do something, I better do it. Because if not, I'm shamed, uh, and I I don't have that honor. Uh, We might think of this in in a number of different ways, but for medieval knights, this really matters uh, in deeds of arms, uh, on the battlefield, um, against your neighbors who you hate. Uh, If someone hurts me and I say, I'm going to have my vengeance on you, everyone heard me say it because I said it publicly. And if I don't have my vengeance, if I don't punish my enemies, everyone's going to know I'm not really a man, uh, Mm -hmm. that I have no honor, that I've shamed myself and my family. So that's sort of the core. And I think that concept of honor uh, as as a core of a martial code goes way back. Um, I I think it goes back into sort of the misty Germanic past, if you like. Uh, Some have traced it into the Roman world, um, but I would would plunk it down with the Germans myself. The other two things and I'll I'll sort of move along here. Uh, The other two things that I think are important. One is sort of the culture of chivalry. Uh, that gets developed really in the early 12th century uh, with uh, epic poetry that celebrates deeds of arms as well as the development of romance. Uh, Arthurian stuff uh, especially uh, and some of the other literatures that belong with it. And finally, I would argue, and again this is contested, I would argue that you really can't talk about chivalry until the moment of the first crusade. Hmm. uh, Or at least the religiously valorizing attitude of the church that blesses the martial behavior of knights in battle. And we can say it starts with the Council of Clermont, uh, where Pope Urban convenes the first crusade, others say it comes a little earlier, others say it comes a little later, but somewhere there in the 11th century, I think you have all these pieces come together to create sort of a set of ideas, values, that they called uh, chivalry.
0: I I think that sounds great. Um, I have have lots of questions. I feel like we could do the whole interview just on on this topic. Um, But I I do want to ask two quick follow-up questions, if I may um the first is looking at this idea of this heroic code as this kind of warrior code this warrior ethos as you mentioned it's interesting you go back to these germanic roots i mean i think immediately of the ancient greeks as well i mean do you do you see kind of a fundamental difference or similarity with some of these greek heroes i mean i'm thinking of achilles for instance right if you and impinge my honor like i'm I'm gonna take my toys and go home right i'm not even gonna fight but then when he does fight he has to be the best warrior as well so i mean I, i think we have these ideas of honor and reputation in a very public way In these cultures as well so i'm i'm interested in how you see that being either similar or or different and then also there's this concept of ideology which i I know is a huge topic and so just to to be really really quick with it I, i guess kind of the question i have is how are you seeing are you seeing ideology purely as a set of ideas or are you seeing them as a set of ideas that are somehow prescriptive and kind of determine deterministic of behavior
1: yeah uh both excellent questions uh the first the question of honor um
0: you know there is a sort of
1: universal universality uh, to to this concept of honor and honor violence for warriors, and and you're absolutely right. Um, I talk about this with my students when I teach ancient Greek stuff. It's absolutely in in the Odyssey, in the Iliad, where people are shamed, and the way to rectify shame is, is to beat the heads of the people who, who shamed you. Um, so uh, I think that's absolutely in ancient Greece. I think it's writ large in Roman culture. Um, I'm less of an expert, obviously, but I think you see it in early Japanese culture, uh, to some extent in early Chinese culture. Um, it's in the Islamic world. I think it's a lot of places, and I do think it sort ser- sort of serves as, as the core of a lot of uh, warrior codes. So in that sense, there's a universality to it. Um, and I, I think you're right that there's something sort of maybe fundamentally human, frighteningly human uh, in, in this core of chivalry, in this core of, of a warrior code. Oh. As far as uh, the, the second question, remind me, what, what
0: was it? So I was thinking about ideology. I'm looking at ideology yeah. as kind of a yeah. set of ideas, a set of kind of ideas that are somehow prescriptive, I guess is where, is it just ideas that people hold yes. or is it something that shapes behavior?
1: I, th- I think it's both um, when you read chivalric literature in the middle ages or treatises or chronicles, you have uh, a lot of descriptive things, uh, right? You have descriptions of battle, uh, which happen all the time. And you say the knight went into battle and fought his enemies. Okay, cool. Uh, you have ideas that are simply positive. Um, but I think a whole lot of chivalric literature, especially the imaginative literature is prescriptive as you're saying. And I think it's a really important distinction to make. You can have a description of a horse, but you have a prescription of how a man should interact with his horse, Uh, right? A man should sort of nobly uh, carry his horse into battle. I know I've gotten them reversed here. Uh, (laughs) The horse carries the man, but the man also uh, sort of charges the horse into battle. Uh, So there are a lot of ideas that are meant to prescribe behavior, that are meant to tell knights, and I think especially young knights, the appropriate way of behaving. And this is, again, where the Victorians sort of run away with it so they they see something again let's let's take men and women where you have um this is is not spanish but um in thomas mallory's uh lamort d'arthur uh there's something called the pentecostal oath uh where the knights of camelot get together and they all swear uh not to do nasty things and one of them is we will not rape women we will not beat women we will not kill women and they take that oath every single year that's worrisome to me uh right the victorians saw that and they said see look this is how good these knights were and I'm standing on this side saying, oh my God, uh, every year they had to be told not to rape and kill women. There's a problem that they're trying to address. And I think a lot of chivalric literature is exactly that saying, look, violence is wonderful. It's important to us. Uh, should there be some limits on it? Yeah, probably. Um, and, and they disagree, right? The chivalric the treatises, the chivalric uh, literature is not uh, uniform uh, on every point. There is disagreement uh, on, on these sorts of points. It's very, very prescriptive.
0: OK, that's, that's great. I, I I like that. Yeah, I kind of I like that definition a lot. I think that's really interesting. Also, I, I would take kind of this oath in the same way. I mean, when you see laws being reenacted every couple of years, it's like, all right, obviously yes. they're breaking this law. So they have to do something. <laughs> Why else would you reissue it
1: every that's, year? You know? yeah,
0: that, yeah, that's the thing. So that your answer though does lead me to to my next question. and so I was wondering how, how this idea, how this concept developed in medieval Liberia in particular. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, some of the ways that chivalry develops in medieval Liberia and also some of the ways that it might be different from the way it developed in other parts of Europe. And then also kind of more more broadly, what are some ways that this that chivalry impacted society in medieval Liberia as well?
1: So this is this is a really cool way to talk about both uh, the similarities and the differences. One thing I emphasize in, in my work is that Iberia is not this sort of magical, strange land. It's part of Western Europe. Um, it's, it's connected to Western Europe. So a lot of the assumptions we have uh, in medieval history that are often derived from English and French history, sometimes German or Italian, they apply in, in the Iberian context. So I want to dispel that notion that that spain is this sort of orientalized land Uh, chivalry came to to spain we think uh from the french uh from french knights who traveled to spain uh to fight uh to serve new lords to find more opportunities and they brought with them uh ideas that sort of already existed in the courts of of central and southern france where where we think chivalry itself originated in in the courts of of southern and central france um and from there it's sort of gets broadcast, uh, gets embraced. Um, you get a lot of French literature and eventually English literature and eventually Italian literature coming into Spain, being translated. Uh, so there is a lot of borrowing. I, I like to describe chivalry in the Middle Ages. It's it's sort of, and I'm borrowing part of this from my advisor, uh, Richard Kuiper. It's sort of like an amoeba right? Mm -hmm. It sort of has this core, this nucleus that's the same everywhere. And then occasionally in England, it reaches out that way. In Castile, it reaches out the other way. In Italy, it it does strange things. Uh, (laughs) There's always a core that I think knights from across Europe would have understood and agreed on, even as they might have disputed, uh, argued with one another about what was different. Uh, so, so two points I want to make here. First is, uh, I think Iberia's contribution uh, to chivalry, because again, we see it coming together in France and we often think of it as a fundamentally French concept. But chivalric literature owes a lot. Uh, to this to the Spanish context, to the Iberian context, and specifically uh, to the Islamic context. Uh, if If we think of chivalric literatures beginning with uh, the troubadours, um, right? Sort of these songs of love, of courtly love in in many cases, uh, as I understand it, those came out of, of the Islamic tradition of Andalusia, of, of Al-Andalus. Uh, so, so Iberia does have a pretty important claim in forming chivalry that I think is often overlooked. We love to say, oh, it was, it was the um, the Occitanians who invented chivalry. And, eh, uh, you know, they, they owe some things to, to some other people, including uh, Iberians. What I would also say is, Iberia gives us a really uh, interesting window to see how, specific geographical and historical contexts change things uh, and for me and again there there are historians out there who i hope are listening um, and are going to argue with me loudly and angrily uh, for me in iberia what really becomes highlighted in late medieval chivalry uh that's different from italy france uh england is the religious element and let me sort of begin by saying Uh, You have the French knights of the First Crusade, other knights, not just French, of the First Crusade, who sort of begin this idea that when I go and fight against Muslims, uh, God loves me and my sins are forgiven. No, that's Pope Urban who said Uh that. And knights really internalize that to the point where it no longer has to be fighting against Muslims. I can go and fight against my Christian neighbor down the road. Mm, god still loves me for it god loves the fighting god loves the fact that i suffer on the battlefield and that gets internalized in a lot of ways across western europe what what's unique about iberia is the geopolitical situation it's easy for someone in northern england or scotland to say yes religion crusade let's go they do go sometimes and sometimes they don't there are some very famous cases of, of kings of england right raising crusade money and then saying yeah i don't think i'm gonna go after all in Iberia, the situation is different. I would say, especially by the late 14th and into the 15th centuries, the chivalric literature uh, I identify—things uh, like the Chronica Saracina, things like uh, continuations of the Legend of El Cid—really begin to emphasize how important the Holy War is. And I, I can wade in, if you like, into the whole historiographical debate over the Reconquista but that's not my intention here. I wanna sort of hold it at at arm's length. But I do think in in the 1400s especially, Castilian Knights, Aragonese Knights, Galician Knights, uh, all throughout Iberia, Knights began saying, look, we have a Muslim neighbor to the south, the kingdom of Granada why are we not going there and fighting and winning the greatest possible honor as well as divine blessing and you start to sort of feel a drumbeat as you read the literature and the chronicles and the treatises of saying we need to go and fight against granada and it's really slow to get there uh, it'll pick up eventually as as everyone knows uh, in, in 1492 or or a bit before that but that's one thing that i would highlight is unique uh to iberian chivalry the real sort of power of the religious ideology the the immediate nature of it that it's right here we don't have to travel outremer right we don't have to travel to the levant to the holy land uh to fight against non-christians we can do it right here uh and in doing so we can reclaim the land that is ours uh from the perspective of medieval knights
0: i would agree with you i think even going back all the way to the time of alfonso the 10th in the mid 13th century i think we do see yeah. a lot of this religious iconography I'm thinking of things like the Cantigas de Santa Maria, where we see kind of yes. this idea of fighting under the flag of Maria, of, of Mary, which is really just a very interesting image for us today, I think. Yes. So, yeah, I, I think that's great. Um, so I, I do want to change gears a little bit, though, and, and focus a little bit and talk a little bit more about violence. Before we talk about violence forming this kind of central part of chivalry, which you already touched on a little bit, but I, I, I will want you to kind of expand upon a bit. But before we do that, I was wondering about violence in in general. So in particular, I was wondering what are some ways that violence would have formed a part of medieval society in a way that's different from the way that we think about violence today. The example that always jumps to my mind, I mean, you mentioned the Crusades. I'm thinking of the Chronicle of the First Crusades, where they talk about killing everyone in Jerusalem when they conquer the city, wading through literally up to their ankles in blood. And I mean, my students read this and they're like, what is this? This is terrible. And I was like, well, <laughs> yes, it, first of all, it is terrible. But I think for a modern or a contemporary audience, it would have they would have reacted differently. So I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about violence. You, you could talk about that example or not, <laughs> however you want to take it. But just a little bit about the role of violence in medieval society.
1: I guess if I had to distill this down, and I'll expand on it, um, I think violence was more immediate in the middle ages than it is today and and let me sort of explain what i mean by that i i hope much of our audience is is familiar with the the idea of uh, of pinker the better angels of our natures right uh, or of our nature the the idea exists out there that as time has gone on um we have become better people we've become less violent And in in the medievalist community, there is a strong reaction against that. It says, no, 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 the Middle Ages were peaceful. They were nice. They were pleasant. Today is wicked and nasty. And I guess I get disillusioned with both sides. Uh, I, I'm not sure that we're, we're any less violent today than we were in the Middle Ages. We can push a button and destroy millions of people. Um, that's that's horrifying in a way that, that medieval people had no concept of. Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't like this romanticizing of the Middle Ages that says, no, it was nice. The crime was lower, right? And brutality was lower. Because I think your average person probably experienced more violence than your average a uh, person in the modern world does and of course in the modern world it depends on whether you're in you know Los Angeles or rural Iowa or or Spain uh, versus um uh, other parts that are experiencing much more violence Ukraine uh, at the moment for example um but I I think for your average medieval person uh violence was was more immediate was more real uh, and I think that's for a number of reasons. Um, I think partly, as as we'll talk about here shortly, is is the ideas of the elites that, that violence was part of who they were, um, and and again we'll get into that. But I think too that violence was just expected. And let's let's return to your example of of the First Crusade. Yeah, the the blood up to the the wetlocks of of the horses doesn't matter. Uh, waves of blood in Jerusalem, and and famously, um, they they killed everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. They didn't stop to sort out. Are you Muslim? Are you Jewish? Are you Christian? Mm-hmm. Some of our chroniclers say they just slaughtered everyone. Um, and again, that's horrifying. I, I would add to this the Albigensian crusade uh, in southern France, uh, where famously uh, the, the bishop present uh, was asked. They said, how do we sort out who's a heretic and who's a Christian? And he said, kill them all. God will know his own. Um, and I think that's that sort of whole approach of life was life was more tenuous in some ways, right? Modern medicine didn't prolong life uh, in the way that it can in the modern world. Um, I I think there was a a closer relationship with death. Um, And I think you see that sort of written. At the same time, I do think, I do think they would have reacted with horror to some of the more extreme violence. Um, I think they would have seen the slaughter in Jerusalem, and, and at least some people back home would have questioned it, would have said, was that necessary? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but again, in, in the very discussion of it, there, there's a closeness, a, a greater acceptance of violence. That That's simply how, how the world works um, and that we don't really have the capability or in some cases the desire to change it. Um, and again, I, I would argue this is because of elite assumptions, but let's let's imagine down on the peasant level, I, I think people there experience violence more profoundly as well. And uh, again, I'm, I keep reaching to non-Spanish examples, and I apologize for that. Uh, one thing I often assign to my students is, is a, a French story called Renard the Fox, um, which is it's terrible and wonderful all at once, it's a, a nasty biting satire of society. And one of the central issues is... is Uh, again, uh, a rape of a woman. Uh, They're all animals. So it's uh, the rape of a a wolf woman. Um, And it's played for laughs uh, through the whole thing. And again, in our our age, my students read this, and I've had students get upset with me that I assigned it, uh, that it's insensitive, that it's inappropriate. And I say, yes, it is insensitive. It is inappropriate. But it sure tells us something about the assumptions of the medieval world, uh, that they could say, this is our world women are raped, people are slaughtered in battle. Uh, if you have the wrong religious beliefs and you end up on the wrong side of battle, you may be slaughtered. Um, so I think it's just a, a greater acceptance of a, a more immediate violence. I, I'm not sure if I've completely answered your question in all of that.
0: No, I, I think you have. I think you did a nice job of looking at the way the way that violence is is plays out, right? Looking at this kind of, yeah. the, this presence or the, the the closeness of death as well. And a lot of these things are the, yeah. the expectations of society. Mm-hmm. Um, so you 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 did bring in a number of examples from outside of Iberia. I wonder if we could kind of focus in on, a, on medieval Iberia a little bit. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the ways that violence formed important aspects of Castilian and Aragonese society, so kind of what becomes Spanish society um, eventually. And and here with this question, I am thinking a little bit of scholars like R.I. right, the, the formation mm-hmm. of a persecuting society, and yeah. David Nuremberg as well, right, communities of violence, of and, and looking at just the, the central role that a lot of really kind of major scholars have, have posited in Iberian society in a way that's maybe unique from other parts of Europe as well.
1: And the Iberian case is fascinating for that reason. And, and both Moore and, and Nuremberg, their work is, uh, it's, it's monumental for a reason. Um, and it's spurred a lot of debate for good reason uh you have this whole sort of debate in in medieval spanish history about is it is it convivencia uh or is it reconquista right do you have religious tolerance the convivencia where jews and christians and muslims all live together in peace and harmony or do you have the reconquista idea that especially christians and muslims but also jews are constantly hostile to one another and again you you know what i'm gonna say i think this is a false dichotomy um, i think both are true I think Moore and Nuremberg have shown pretty convincingly that the the dominant people in in Castilian society, in Aragonese society, uh, the Christian elite, developed developed persecution of minorities, uh, of of Jews especially, of of Muslims and Muslim converts uh, towards the end of the Middle Ages, of of any convert to to Christianity, um, of Jewish converts to Christianity, the conversos. Um, of women, of of peasants, um, so class hierarchies, all those sorts of things, and I think that's really important. I would temper that with the realities that you see in in documents like um, like the fueros, uh, the sort of uh, traditional laws uh, of certain cities like Sevilla, um, which are sort of closer to the frontier at at particular moments, at least uh, in in Iberian history, where there's a recognition that yeah, there's a hierarchy that puts Christians here uh, and then Jews somewhere in here and Muslims down below and then everyone else uh, sort of in this mass. Uh, but also recognition that we're living in a, in a society here and we have to sort of have rules for how we interact. So we regulate, uh, we being the city of Sevilla, uh, regulates um, how Jewish butchers can sell their meat, uh, regulates where uh, Muslim merchants can sell their wares and to whom. Uh, so, when, when we read these from the modern perspective, it often looks nasty, right? It, it often looks terrible, that how awful that we're creating a religious hierarchy. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind they're creating these regulations in order uh, to try to stabilize society, to prevent violence uh, in some cases. Uh, so some ways that, that violence formed an important aspect of Castilian and Aragonese society are, are things like uh, eventually the Inquisition, um, right? Where, where you're actively targeting uh, converts to Christianity in, in the theory that they're, in their words, Judaizing, uh, that they're going back to their Jewish traditions and not being good Christians and, and people were, were tortured and, and executed and things like that. that. That's sort of a profound way in which violence uh, influenced um, medieval society, medieval Christian society in Iberia. So you get, I think, by the end of the Middle Ages, almost a, a paranoia. Um, uh, among among your average Christian about making sure that I am doing things correctly uh, so that I cannot be targeted with the power of the state um, or in the case of the Inquisition, the power of the state and church combined.
0: So I, I do want to change gears a little bit. I want to come back to chivalry, but I, I do want to stay on this this idea of violence. And, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about whether or not you think violence itself is necessary for chivalry. I mean, I think yeah. you do a great job of distinguishing kind of our modern idea of chivalry, which is much more like courtesy, you know, kind of versus kind of what this, this medieval idea of chivalry might be. But I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about the central or the, what I see as a central role of violence kind of being in chivalry. And then also really in what ways violence seems to belong to the upper classes and differentiates kind of this, as you put it, the lay elite um, from the lower classes as well. So Yes. Um,
1: So in, in response to your first question, I would say unequivocally violence is necessary for chivalry. Um, And I would, Say that in stark terms, no, no equivocating on that question. Um, without without violence, you don't have medieval chivalry. Uh, it simply doesn't exist. When you read the literature, uh, the sources, um, uh, again, things like Amadis de which we can talk about in a moment, when a man is challenged in any way, he doesn't go to court or. Sometimes he goes to court. But typically, he, he gets his sword, mounts his horse, and bashes heads. That's, that's what he does. And and again, there's very little disagreement on that crucial central point, that to be a good and strong man necessarily means you will be a violent man. And and this sort of plays out in becoming a man as well. And I'll just talk about this uh, briefly. It's been on my mind a bit. Uh, you have chivalric literature like uh, the Most of that is de Rodrigo, Uh, which is the youth, youthful deeds is how it's often translated of El-Sid. So this is El-Sid is a young man and he's something, I don't remember exactly, something like 15 years old, coming of age for a man. Uh, And it's a perfect example. Uh, When he is ready to become a man, how does he do it? He gets on a horse and rides into battle and kills three enemies. Uh, And the number doesn't matter. Uh, He's angry, he's violent, and that's how we know he's a man. Uh, is by going into battle uh, to defend his honor and his family's honor and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's not just literature. There's there's a very famous knight um, in late medieval Castile in the 15th century, uh, Rodrigo Ponce de Leon, a really important guy. And he, he loves to talk about, or at least his chroniclers and the people surrounding him in the Spanish Renaissance always mention uh, the Battle of Madroño, uh, which is, in our in our world, a relatively minor battle. But he was, again, I, I believe 15 years old, that key age of becoming a man. And he goes into the battle of Madroño and he fights and he spills blood. And importantly, he takes a wound. Um, and I, I think in Madronio, he he's wounded in the arm with a spear. Later, he's wounded in the arm with an arrow. Uh, but as a boy, he's wounded. His blood is spilled. And, and towards the end of his life, um, he writes, um, not officially, but sort of unofficially to Queen Isabel, uh, to the monarchs, uh, in in a document he produces. And he says, I was there at the Battle of Madronio where my blood was spilled in defense of my honor. Uh, And he mentions several other battles, but that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to be a man is to be violent. I think that's uh, indisputably true uh, for chivalry. But where does this fit with class? Um, How does it belong to the upper classes? How does it set them apart from the lower classes? this is something i think is really important and reveals a lot about humanity not just in the middle ages and i'm not going to get political on you breton i I promise (laughs) um but in in our modern world as well um i would argue that the elites especially the lay elites that is the knights the nobles uh of medieval castile thought of themselves as as fundamentally different from the commoners uh from the peasants, the urban inhabitants, uh, the fishmongers, whatever they are, all the common people. And and why is that? Um, partly it's because elites always like to think of themselves as different. But in, in the context of medieval Castile, uh, they thought of themselves of different, as different because they had honor, because they had access to honor in a way that peasants did not. Um, you can't really insult a peasant's honor uh, from the chivalric worldview, because who cares? um who cares that someone says something nasty to a peasant uh let's follow this up with the whole idea of violence because that's woven into this if i'm an elite man and someone says hey you weakling you coward go home then what i have to do to defend my honor is say you shut your mouth or i will shut it for you and he keeps talking so of course um i get my sword or lance or what have you and and break his head that that marks me as an elite man because uh, a peasant if his fellow peasant comes up and says, hey, you shut your mouth, and he picks up a pitchfork and stabs the other guy. Uh, we have examples of this that are written as comedies uh, from the chivalric point of view. They think this is laughable, uh, that a peasant is defending his honor, because there is no honor in being a peasant. They simply don't, they don't fit in that world. Uh, they don't have the status, they don't hold land, they can't own a horse, they can't wield a sword. Uh, There's sort of a joke to the chivalric elite. Um, there's a number of, of sort of examples of this in our in our literature and poetry and ballads um, that depict what I have argued, the commoners, the peasants, as sort of more in the class of animals, uh, mm-hmm. barnyard animals, not not horses or hounds or hawks, certainly, but of pigs, um, of cattle. That's how I think peasants are really seen um, from a modern view, we'd say as subhuman. Medievals don't use that terminology, but I think it's there. So, for example, uh, there's a, a frontier ballad. I, th- I think it's from the 15th century, but it could be early 16th, uh, where there's this beautiful noblewoman, and she's walking through the countryside, and and the ballad is is a bit body. It describes her body in detail, uh, and she meets people along the way who she favors, right, with a kind word, with a gesture, and then she meets a peasant, uh, and the peasant says to her, "Oh, you're so beautiful. I'd love to." Get to know you, uh, and she laughs at him. She just says, "Imagine such a thing! What a ridiculous uh, concept!" and walks away. And it's meant to be a joke. Uh, it's meant to be a joke. The whole idea that a commoner could participate in noble society. The one other example that I think really illustrates this uh, is the evidence of social rebellion. Uh, throughout the 15th century, uh, part of the 14th century, we have evidence that the wars of the nobles are targeted on on common people. They're the people who suffer in the wars the most. They're the people who are killed, who crops, whose crops are burned, uh, leaving them to starve, all, all that sort of stuff. And uh, the common people petition the crown over and over and over. They say, please, 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 please stop the knights from killing us. And the king says, oh, sure, I'll do that. And he doesn't, uh, because we get petitions the next year and the next year and the next year. Please stop the knights from killing us. Uh, And the king says, I'll make sure I do. Uh, And he doesn't. And so eventually in Galicia, uh, in in the uh, mid-15th century, the peasants rise up. They've had enough. And you see the same thing happening in France, Hmm. uh, to a certain extent in northern Italy, uh, in Aragon, uh, in England. You have these sorts of social rebellions. uh, And... (laughs) go crazy uh they start you know cutting up noble women uh attacking knights and roasting them on a spit all all those sorts of stories who knows if they're true this might be chivalric writers who are trying to frighten their peers but what i think is remarkable about it is when our chroniclers describe uh this rebellion this one's called the irmandino's rebellion up in galicia um they use the word loco um and and that's a word that doesn't get used a lot in the chronicles um so modern technology lets us do word searches of chronicles which is really cool the word loco is rare in our chronicles but they use it a couple times to describe the rebellion from from the elite perspective this is craziness the world has been turned upside down because the peasants are committing violence against the elites uh and it's so profound that during the civil war uh the Castilian or the the war of succession, I should say, a, a civil war in the late 15th century, the two sides in the civil war stop fighting. They say, all right, we got to take care of the real problem, these terrible peasants who are rebelling against us. They set aside their differences, they slaughter the peasants, put them down, and then they say, all right, let's keep killing each other now. Um, and, and I think that really speaks to this idea of social status and social hierarchy that is baked into chivalry uh, with violence reinforcing it
0: yeah that's that's really interesting i i didn't know that about the social wars in the 15th century that's really fascinating i mean i i knew i know a little bit more about say the peasants revolt in the late 14th century in england but th- this yeah. idea of peasants rising up just being like no more right this is this is too much um and i, I could see a lot of castilian kings being like sure we'll help you but they're, yeah. they're not they're not gonna do anything <laughs> um but i was i was intrigued you mentioned amadis um you talked a little bit about some of these these frontier ballads as well I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way that maybe some of these ideas of chivalry, some of this this connection with with violence as well, the chivalric violence. I was wondering how much of this may be kind of going back to some of the literature or kind of looking at what the role of literature might be in shaping some of these conceptions.
1: Yeah, um, that's an excellent question. And and there is such a deep sort of bench of scholarship on, on literature and literature and history it's it's a really fascinating topic i've looked at amadis i've looked at uh, again the chronica Saracina, uh, which is an invented history um, i've looked at chivalric romance uh, and the question of violence specifically is really profound because again what what you'll find is the heroes of chivalric romance uh, as well as epic poetry the reason they're heroes is partly because they behave well uh, because they treat elite women with respect, things like that. But it's also because they're the best knight in the world. And what, what that means is they're the best at fighting. Um, allow me to borrow one one, Europe, one northern example and then return to Spain. Um, again, the, the Grail cycle in France, the Arthurian legends. Lancelot is the best knight in the world because he often goes into battle one against 12, right? One against 10, and he beats them. That's why he's the best knight, not necessarily because of his love of, of Guinevere or anything like that. It's because of his prowess, uh, because of his violence uh, in something like *Amadis*, um, which is which is fantastic. If if the audience hasn't read it, I strongly recommend it if you can sort of power through. It's long uh, and, and repetitive, but it's wonderful. Um, I I would recommend thinking about what it is that the heroes do, what Amadis does, uh, and what some of the other uh, sort of leading knights do. Um, I'm struck by one example early on in Amadis, where uh, a man uh, has his honor threatened. Um, a giant has seized his father's castle.
0: Gi- a giant stole they, my castle just the other day. You have to fight. Like it's just it's awkward. It's
1: terrible. The giant problem in Southern California is terrible. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> anyhow so so he prepares to go and fight this giant and everyone around him tells him no don't do it you're gonna die you're definitely gonna die you're you're going to lose this fight and he's a hero because he rejects all that advice he says even if i die i will die defending my honor and fighting uh so he goes into battle surprise he kills the giant Uh, he wins his father's land back and you think okay that's a nice little story set it aside uh and uh the author um originally an uh, anonymous author and then it's printed later by someone we know, Monsalvo, he, he moves on to a different story and then he comes back uh, and he says, hey, remember the guy who fought the giant? Well, guess what he did next? Uh, he, fought, he fought a dwarf who had a whole bunch of, uh, again, the dwarf problem in, in uh, Nevada, I hear, is, is awful. It's wild. Yeah, just terrible. Uh, <laughs> anyway, this dwarf has abducted a noble lady. And so he has to go and fight against all the knights of the dwarf and the of the dwarf himself eventually, uh, all those sorts of things. But, but you have to pause in these moments because it's easy to sort of read through this and say, sure, he has to fight for the honor of the lady. All right. In one episode, uh, he's up against three knights, three wicked knights, and he fights each of them. But one of the knights isn't quite dead. And again, I'm reminded of Monty Python. I'm not dead yet. So after he sort of beats this guy with his sword and his lance they they unhorse each other uh they fight on foot so they they keep killing spilling blood uh and then just to finish him off uh the hero gets back on his horse and and in english translation uh he tramples the other guy for a bit for a bit and i i just think that's such a a wonderful example of the role of violence in chivalric literature is is ubiquitous and again, I would, I would simply emphasize that when we in the modern world read it, we're, we're often uncritical readers. Um, so we'll read something from the Middle Ages that is loaded with violence and say, well, yeah, sure, but I'm looking for grand morals and I'm looking for sort of grand ideas, and that's wonderful. We should do that. But occasionally we need to slow down uh, and say, how are we really reading uh, the assumptions of our literature? And the assumptions of Gaula uh is a good man... Again, it's prescriptive. Uh, a good man fights. A good man is violent to anyone who opposes him, anyone who shames him, uh, anyone who who challenges him. And and again, I think that's fundamental uh, for for your audience. Uh, if if they are not capable of reading uh, medieval Castilian, uh, Amadis is available in modern English translation. Uh, the Mosidades, uh this sort of epic poem, available in translation. Uh, I would go back to to the High Middle Ages, uh, the Song of the Sid uh same same sort of story going on there uh where el Cid later he does go to court towards the end he does seek the king's justice which fails him uh and so he resorts to violence um but if you slow down and read something like the cantar del mio Cid, uh the song of the Cid. Read it slowly and see how often people are good because they kill someone else or beat someone else to within an inch of their life. And I think you'll 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 really find it remarkable. Uh, there's an old joke that I often use when you read Shavarok uh, Romance. If you take the book and tip it up a little, blood will spill out on your lap uh, as you read it. And it's just, it's breathtaking once you sort of are primed uh, to, to look for that sort of thing.
0: I I, I I think that's right. I mean, I think that's really interesting. I also, I mean, I think I'll say... Said... And the Cantar de said also talks. It reflects what you were saying earlier as well. With the way you treat non-elite people, you can treat them any way you want, right? I mean, the way that yes. he treats the money lenders, for instance, where he just tricks them and just yes. steals their money, and it's it's totally okay, like it's totally fine because yes. he's of an upper class and they're not. So and
1: it's class, and and some scholars have argued it's uh, religious as well that the money lenders may be meant to be uh, Jewish as mm-hmm. well, right? So I I think it reinforces all of those ideas of of status and class and and hierarchy. Yeah.
0: I, I just I find it really fascinating. So I, I do want to kind of move on a little bit. I want to kind of in, in a lot of your work, you talk about the role that this chivalric violence plays in conquest as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you talk a little bit about you, you you mentioned the Crusades. You talk a bit about the Crusades, the way that kind of we see chivalric violence being being utilized, being mobilized. And then also you talk a little bit in the Iberian context about figures like Fernando de Antiquetta, who would go on to be Fernando the First of Aragon. Uh, so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about this this relationship between chivalric violence, also the performance of anger, which is also just this this fascinating thing, and looking at the role that this this plays, and, and really the the necessity of it in kind of really undertaking conquest as well, and kind of as as a means to unlock conquest in, in a way.
1: Yeah, and this is it's such a sort of walnut, right? A, a tough nut to crack here, the idea of conquest because. On its face we should simply say well if if knights are all about this violence and this war then they would have been conquering all the time and and yet they weren't um, they weren't quite at least there's lots of conquest going on as you as you suggested with the crusades uh with the holy war against granada in the iberian context um you mentioned uh the canaries uh so all sorts of uh, conquest eventually goes on um what i would say is that for for knights, sort of living in this world of chivalry and chivalric worldview, ideology, uh, conquest was really important to them. The idea of going and finding a new place uh, to conquer, uh, there's a lot of honor to be won in that. The idea that you are putting it all on the line. You're putting your life on the line, uh, your reputation, your honor, of course, um, your, your fortune, uh, putting it on the line to go somewhere like uh, Jerusalem and fight there and and hope that you win hope you conquer so you get more land there because if you don't you got trouble uh same thing with the conquest of the canaries or conquest in north africa in the late middle ages and the early modern period that's always sort of enticing for knights and i would argue as we get towards 1500 it becomes more and more enticing in the castilian context but um i would back us up just a moment to emphasize that knights were also perfectly willing to earn honor, fighting against one another, uh, and I—I I mean, against one another in the Castilian context, hmm. um, fighting against your neighbor down the road wins you a lot of honor. Um, there's there's a real famous, well, relatively famous <laughs> among among 15th century Castilian historians, anyway, famous uh, example in the 15th century where um, two of the premier families of Andalusia fight each other. Um, and the way it plays out is, is always amazing to me. I, I just, I love this story, and I talk about it in my book. Um, the Ponce de Leones, uh, or the Ponces, if you like, uh, and the Bismanes, um, these two elite families, uh, they're both participating in the conquest of Granada. Um, not, not Queen Isabel's campaign, an earlier uh, effort to conquer parts of Granada. Uh, and they fight at the city of Gibraltar and they conquer the city of Gibraltar. It's a successful campaign. But as they're sort of going uh, to complete the conquest, uh, Rodrigo Ponce de Leon, who I've already mentioned, uh, he's in the tower, and one of the representatives from the Guzmanes says, all right, fly my flag up to the top of this tower. And it's not clear. There are different stories about what happens, but my favorite story is that Rodrigo uh, seizes the flag or hits the other guy in the arm with his sword and says, nope. We're flying my banner, not yours. It's a question of honor in the holy war, which is important to them, uh, the idea of conquering. Um, but this little sort of kerfuffle over honor in the conquest of Gibraltar leads both the ponces and the Guzmanes uh, to have a feud between uh, the two of them. And they, they go to war for several years. Uh, you have churches being burned down in Sevilla uh, because they're fighting each other over who won greater honor in the holy war and who had greater claim to the conquest of Ju- uh, of Gibraltar. Uh, so conquest is really important. But just don't ever forget that it's fine to fight your neighbor at home too. Lots of honor to be won there. All right. Uh, having said all that, I think one thing that's sort of important that you mentioned, uh, Fernanda de Antequera. Um, who, uh, as as your your listeners I may or may not know, uh, was the um, the regent for Castile uh, during the minority of Juan I. Uh, he would he I'm sorry Juan II. The, uh, the minority of Juan II. He would go on to become uh, king of Aragon uh, himself. But while he was regent, uh, he decided to open the Holy War in a real profound way. A lot of the Trastámara kings uh, had fought against Granada, but they did what from a modern military perspective looks like slow war uh, or sort of grinding war. Um, Target your enemy's economic bases. In the case of Granada, target the vineyards, the orchards, uh, all of the plant sort of resources. This is what in the Chronicles they call uh, la tala, uh, the cutting, if you like. Um, And Fernanda de Antiquera does something different. He says, yeah, we're going to go ahead and wreak that economic havoc, but we're going to conquer as well. We're actually going to take a major fort or a major city. And this is with the advice of the Shavarica elite around him, his knights. And the short version of this uh, is that uh, he ends up conquering uh, the, the village or the, the, the city of Antequera, where he gets his name. Um, but what I think is remarkable about this is... Uh, his performance of chivalric ideals and you talked about the performance of anger uh, so at multiple moments during this campaign once fernando has committed to sort of a vigorous war against granada uh, he deploys anger in a performative way to get the results he wants uh, so when his knights are not performing well enough uh, during one battle he shows up and starts berating them and he says come on you should have shame do what you have to do be men go and do it um and it's, it's angry and it works because his knights uh, are shamed by it they they don't say this in the chronicles but they would say oh we need to be better men and they sort of redouble their efforts uh and they go back in uh, there's another story that i love that i mentioned at a, a paper recently uh where he's besieging a city uh and the defenders um have a, a countermine. so in siege warfare the castilians put a mine under the walls of the city which is a tunnel designed to collapse the walls the defenders uh dig a countermine, uh which is designed to collapse the tunnel it's going to collapse the walls it's, it's siege warfare at its best uh and so the castilians knowing that they are being countermined Uh, Are supposed to be shoveling dirt into the countermine to prevent it from collapsing their mine. And it's not going well. So Fernando rides on his horse uh, to the countermine. He picks up a shovel, takes a a shovel full of dirt, and throws it in the hole. And he says, Do I have to do this all myself, or is someone going to help me? And I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, And his men rise to the occasion. His anger, uh, which again, probably was authentic i imagine but is also performative uh is designed to present his anger uh as having a chivalric purpose as encouraging his knights to be more uh driven towards success on the battlefield uh towards conquest uh and that sort of prowess does that answer your question? It, um, I, I can talk more about conquest in, in a place like the Canaries if we have time.
0: Um, I, I think we do, um, I mean, if, if you have time. Um, but I, I did want to kind of follow up with, with that question a little bit. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, Fernando Antequera is an example of being able to kind of use these norms to, to achieve a, a result, right? Conquering Antequera, kind of conquering a substantive territory. But it, it seems like he's the exception as opposed to the norm in the early 15th century and even the late 14th century as well, where we see this constant kind of fighting between Castilian elites. I mean, yes. the reign of Juan II is, is chaos, right? The, the reign of Enrique IV yes. the, the is not much better. So I, I'm, I'm wondering kind of what, what changes as we get towards the end of the 15th century. How are Isabel and Fernando, the Catholic monarchs, able to do this in a more effective way than, than the rulers who came before them? How can they kind of change the kind of use of violence in a more productive way? Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering yeah. some of the changes that happen as we move really from medieval and early modern as we get to the late 15th century.
1: That, that's a wonderful question, Breton, and and a contested question, as, <laughs> as everything is. I'll stop saying contested question. I'm sure everyone's <laughs> tired of hearing it. What, what I would argue... Uh, let me begin. The, the traditional explanation of why, why is Isabel and Fernando, or Ferdinand and Isabel, if we prefer the traditional American designation, uh, why are they more successful? Because you're absolutely right. Uh, the reign of Enrique IV, which comes before Isabel, the reign of Juan II, which is long, and as you say, terrible chaos. Just just disastrous from sort of a stability point of view uh, for the Kingdom of Castile. And as, as you say, it goes back another 50 years before that. Um, so what is it that they do differently? The traditional explanation is they've developed a modern state. They have things like uh, a police force, right? The Santa Hermandad, mm-hmm. uh, which can sort of maintain order throughout their realm. Uh, they have the the agents of the cr- crown called Corregidores, um, which are sort of local agents of of the crown to serve as spies, uh, to serve as doers of justice, to serve as administrators of the crown. Those are very traditional explanations for what uh, Ferdinand and Isabel uh, do well that their predecessors don't. What I would argue, and what I have argued, is there's something more powerful at work here. That someone like Juan II, someone like Enrique IV, didn't comprehend the power of chivalry. And, and again, I'm going out on a dangerous limb here, but I'm going to walk out here.
0: Um,
1: I think they were more concerned with ruling, which is important, or perhaps in the case of Juan, not even ruling. Uh, poor Juan, he, he gets a bad rap sometimes. But uh, they had these sort of difficulties, and and I think one of the biggest difficulties they had is they couldn't control the knights. Hmm. So you ask how how is it that Fernando can control the knights or Queen Isabel can control the knights? And the answer isn't is is they don't. They don't really control the knights, but they understand chivalry. Perhaps they've internalized chivalry to a degree that some of the other Trastamara monarchs haven't. Uh, I think they sort of live in that world better and they better understand the goals, the assumptions of chivalry, uh, and how the whole thing works. So again, just to return to that example of Fernando de Antequera, he deploys anger, which I would argue is a chivalric emotion in the Middle Ages. Knights use anger all the time to demonstrate, I am a strong, violent man, and I will get what I want. He does that, and he's successful isabel is a fascinating example and there's a lot written on her um i I, as you've heard me say i prefer to talk about isabel y fernando rather than ferdinand and isabel um and i'll tell you why uh because achieving that stability that, that they achieve uh towards the end of the 15th century i would say they they don't transform the state as profoundly as we think. Uh, They don't control the knights in the sense that they can simply order the knights to go places and the knights say, yeah, okay, I guess I'll do it now, whereas 20 years ago I wouldn't have. What changes is that Isabel is on their side. She she lives and breathes the sort of things they do. Let me give you an example. Uh, When the war with Granada breaks out uh, towards the end of the 15th century, uh, after Isabel is on the throne of Castile, uh, Fernando goes to the front uh they both agree to to prosecute this war because they've been attacked uh from their perspective not because they're going on on a war of conquest and fernando goes down to the front uh he captures a a small village and then he says all right i'm good i'm going back up to the north uh and isabel and again i'm paraphrasing here writes to him and says hey are you sure you're going (laughs) back up to the north because fernando i got all your stuff arranged to continue this war. So why don't you turn around and go back to the south? And he does. Uh, he goes back to the south, has another signal victory. And then he says to his his knights, uh, go ahead and perform La Talla, do the cutting of the grains and the orchards in Granada to, to weaken them. And he says, I got other business to attend to. I'm going up to the north. And Isabel says, well, are you sure though? And in this case, they actually do go up north to deal with, uh, to deal with France and things up and out of going. Uh, but as soon as that's taken care of, Isabel says, I'm going back. Uh, to the south to prosecute this war. And Fernando says, I'm gonna stay up here for a while at the going to deal with things up here. She goes to the front. Uh, and by the time she gets there, Fernando has changed his mind. Because I would argue of her intervention. Uh, she is constantly convincing her husband to prosecute the war against Granada vigorously. Uh, she is not content to simply say, Yeah, we burned down some grain, some people are gonna starve, they're weakened, we're good. Uh, at one point, Fernando gets a message uh, from the king of Granada, who I believe at the time is Muhammad XII. I may have that wrong. Um, saying, let's have a truce. We'll pay the traditional uh, tribute to Castile, and and we'll be good. And Fernando writes to Queen Isabel, and he says, I'm, I'm inclined to take this. And she writes back and says, I'm not. Um, again, paraphrasing. Uh, in every moment, it would seem, Isabel is the driving force. She's the one that wants to continue the holy war. Whether it's Reconquista or not, I think she would recognize it as a Reconquista, but again, we don't have to dive into that. Uh, She understands that a lot of knights in her realm see the holy war as the highest good, right? The place where we can go and fight and kill, but in addition, we're killing people who aren't Christians. So we're we're doing God's work too. I mean, it's all God's work, killing, but especially killing non-Christians. In addition, they're not just doing God's work, they're correcting a grand historical error uh from their perspective and again this is it's it's frightening in some ways but it, it's important to recognize that there are works that talk about this chronicles uh, and imaginative history that talk about the whole idea that the loss of spain what they call the death the destruction of spain in the 8th century was an error hmm. was history gone amok muslims capturing com- Christian territory was was a horrifying thought and they talk about this as this terrible horrific thing uh and so when Isabel says we're gonna fix it they can all participate that uh so they can vener uh, uh I'm sorry um they can vindicate not only their family's honor but the entire kingdom's honor and in fact the entire religion's honor uh they can vindicate the honor of Spain they can participate in what they see as this grand divine imperative in history uh and so I would argue that Isabel is plugged into that. I, I think, again, I don't think she's calculating this. I don't think she's saying, how can I use chivalry to do this? I think she lives in that world. I think she breathes in that world. Uh, and so she embraces that. If we want to be a little more cynical and say maybe there's some real going on here, she takes the violence of the knights in her realm. And instead of saying, yeah, go ahead and fight each other and then eventually try to overthrow me, which is what happened to her predecessors, they're busy. <laughs> they're busy in the South fighting Granada. And and what's remarkable to me is almost as soon as that effort is done, they turn and they fight in the Canaries, uh, the Canary Islands, which the conquest of that had been sort of slowly progressing for some time. Uh, there are troops that go to North Africa uh, to try to conquer there. And we're getting to the end here. Once the new world is known, a lot of knights go there um, and, and fight in the new world. So in one sense, I, I like to imagine chivalry and knights as sort of this really powerful laser right a, a a laser cannon maybe uh and it's always sort of targeted at the monarch uh in, in the Trastamara period uh because uh knights are seeking that power what isabel does is she grabs that cannon and turns it against other people uh the Grenadins, the canarians and eventually the inhabitants of the new world
0: so I mean, I, I I think that's really... I, I like that image of kind of presenting the, this the chivalric energy that these knights have, this energy for fighting, this this appetite for fighting, and this ability to do it really effectively as well, as opposed to being inwardly directed just like, like facing outwards, either Granada, yeah. the Canaries, the Americas. And and this leads to what will be my, my last question here, is just do, do you see these same norms of kind of chivalric violence playing out in, in the... Con- I mean, obviously, it seems like you do in the conquest of the Canaries. Do you, do you see this in, in the Americas as well? I'm thinking... In particular, things like the conquest of the Aztecs by Cortez, and just looking at these same values kind of being shaping these these later conquests as well. This kind of foundational period for what comes to become Spain's Atlantic Empire as well.
1: Yeah, uh, the short short version is yes. And now we're done. No, I'm kidding. I, I have more to say. You, you'll have to sort of turn me off in order to shut me up, Breton. Um, so yes, you see it writ all over uh, the sort of early Spanish empire. And this this is the direction that my newest work is taking me. So I'm speaking uh, some from having read the sources and some from sort of where I'm headed in my own research. Um, and you, you mentioned Cortez and the Aztecs. And before I get there, let me just start with with a couple of stories that predate that. And that's, uh, that's Columbus. Columbus, in our modern world, is having, having some trouble, isn't he? Uh, he's, he's, he's seen often these days as as genocidal maniac, um, right? As, as this terrible, awful person. And I'm not here to dispute that. Let me say that. I, I do think he, he was uh, pretty nasty in some ways. What I, what I talk to my students about when we talk about Columbus uh, in, in my medieval or early modern history courses is let's set aside our, our own sort of assumptions for a moment. We can observe some of the things he did, uh, some of the things he and then his brothers as well did, who also served in in the Caribbean as governors. And I think what you'll see, if if you understand chivalry uh, in the medieval context, is that Columbus and his brothers were living in that world. Uh, so the violence they perpetrated is not necessarily because he was a genocidal maniac. I leave that to other people to decide whether he was or not. But he certainly was operating under the assumptions uh, of medieval chivalry. And let me give you one good example. Um, There's there's a moment, and I'm going to get the details wrong. There's a moment where uh, an indigenous woman uh, speaks out against the Columbuses. Um, This is when uh, Christopher Columbus is back in Spain uh, and his brothers are are, um, governing the territory in Hispaniola. Uh, And she says, these men aren't noble. they're they're sort of violent and nasty um and so columbus's brothers have her tongue cut out uh for for insulting them and columbus writes to them and says you did well you defended our family's honor and again it's horrifying right (laughs) this is an awful example but i could absolutely imagine someone doing that uh in the context of medieval castile or or medieval northern italy as well uh, where, where columbus was from that that fits with the norms uh of using frightening violence to silence people who would challenge your honor that's what the columbuses did in that situation and i think when we start reading it that way the brutality of the columbuses still horrifying uh but makes more sense uh in their historical context uh you mentioned uh what goes on with cortez and the aztecs and this story is is lovely from a chivalric perspective uh, cortez sets off uh from cuba to the mexican mainland uh he's told not to do it by the governor, uh, Velasquez, And he says, too bad, I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> and one thing that I haven't talked too much about uh, in, in this interview is what, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, it's what my advisor calls the in the goddamn pendants of knights uh, in, in the Middle Ages. And that's certainly true in the Castilian context. Again, if we go back to the reign of Juan II or Enrique IV, knights are doing what they want. Mm-hmm. And when the crown tells them what to do, they see that often as a slight to their honor. It's complicated because they do have to be loyal to their sovereign uh, from a chivalric perspective. But if the sovereign is misbehaving, you absolutely have the right to ignore him or to disobey him or to rebel against him. And so when Cortes uh, rejects the orders of his superior, not the king in this case, but uh, the governor of Cuba, uh, I, I would argue he is independent. He's being an independent knight who is seeking honor, who's seeking glory, through prowess, so when we get to something like the conquest of the Aztecs, uh, that seems to me to be what Cortez is doing. Uh, he's seeking to go to war um, eventually with the Aztecs, although he doesn't know that from the very beginning. But he's seeking adventure and prowess, uh, and bringing his knights along to do it. Many, many of your listeners are probably familiar with Cortez's letters uh, back to uh, back to Carlos V, uh, to the emperor, and in in the most famous letter. He says to the emperor, uh, my disobedience, my conquest of the Aztecs, it was all done in your name, my liege, uh, for your greater glory, for the glory of you and for Spain. Um, And you can just hear this echoing uh, the chivalry of the 15th century. Um, let me give you one example that, again, I, I talked about in my book, but that's breathtaking to me. There's a, a famous knight named uh, Petonino, uh, and they wrote a chronicle about him. Uh, he fights against Juan II in the 15th century, and at one moment, he besieges the king in a castle. That's pretty clearly disobedience in my mind, but uh, we'll, we'll let other people decide that. So he has the king besieged in a castle, and one of the king's uh, uh, partisans, Comes uh, up on the walls of the castle and shouts down at Pedro Nino and says, What are you doing? You're disobeying the king. Uh, And Pedro Nino, in his own chronicle, written by his standard bearer, uh, ignores the guy and addresses the king. And he says, my lord, is there something I can do in your service? I'm here to serve you. (laughs) You're besieging the king and asking, how can I serve you? And it just strikes me as what to us seems this cognitive dissonance, right? Of How can you possibly think what you're doing is right? It's this whole process of, of justifying violent behavior, sometimes against your lord himself for uh, honor and conquest, uh, and that I think is what Cortez is doing in his letter back to back to the emperor, uh, back to Charles, is uh, saying, no, 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 I, I didn't really disobey because I was doing it for you. I was doing it in your service.
0: No, but I mean, that, it's fascinating too that people like Cortez and Columbus would feel able to do this because they're not from these elite, super noble families. But it's almost as though they're kind yeah. of staking this claim to nobility by doing by performing these acts of violence and these acts of of independence as as it were as well yes and and i think that's a really
1: critical point um because often people will will say exactly this right that um that they're not they're not the grand nobility they're they're sort of middle class perhaps or or maybe upper middle depends on who we're talking about um but i think part of the answer to this is the appeal of chivalry especially in the late middle ages this happens all throughout castilian history french and english as well this idea of social risers, right? Um, if I'm sort of a well-to-do commoner, um, perhaps I've, I've served in, in a military capacity, perhaps I'm wealthy enough now to own a horse, uh, to purchase a sword, the popularity of chivalric culture and the status that goes along with chivalric culture, the idea that I am not just going to be a commoner anymore, I'm going to be a knight. Um, the aspiring to that, plugging into that for, again, status, for power, certainly for wealth. Um, We we can't forget that (laughs) that conquest brings wealth wherever it is. Um, I think at the end of the Middle Ages, what you see is an effort by a lot of people a little bit lower down the social scale to claim chivalry for themselves. Or let me rephrase that, perhaps not to claim it for themselves, but to enter into the ranks of chivalry. And I think that's what someone like Columbus uh, or Cortez or Pizarro is doing, uh, is saying, not only am I sort of behaving as a knight, I conquered Mexico. Um, I'm the greatest knight. Um, I have risen, right? Um, I am showing you how good and masculine and knightly I am.
0: I, I think that's really interesting. And I, and I think that also kind of we could open that up to talk about the way that folks who are maybe lower down the status, the, the status or lower down kind of in, in class started claiming and really fighting to defend their honor in very public ways in the early modern period yeah. as we move into kind of the Spanish Empire. But yeah. I, I think maybe we should we should keep that for, for another another <laughs> podcast, another interview, because um, I think we're opening it up to a whole new new questions at this point. Hours and hours more. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Um, So, Sam, thank you for your time. I I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Um, And, yeah, thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you, Brett, and I really enjoyed this, and uh, I look forward to to what comes next.
0: Excellent. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, This has been Historias, and, yeah, I hope you all take care. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.